Please put your hands together for Dr. Clarence B. Jones. Just want to test out an old man's ability to, to cry. Well, I'm not going to cry yet, but I just want to, you know, I'm so delighted to be here. You know, I can't, someone asked me how long have I been doing this, I can't remember, but I want to uh, say a special shout out because I, I want to acknowledge what all of you know that we had the great service of Andrew, Sherry, and Norris West. And I mention that because my brother Norris West, you see, we both come from North Philadelphia in the Master Street, and he's a bad dude separate and apart from his work with the, <laughs> the network. So here we are, the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award. And I am honored that such an award bears my name. And I am even more honored that uh, past recipients, just as this current recipients, reflect the things that I have worked for a great part of my life. I suppose the most indelible, indelible imprint on my life, other than the Catholic nuns who raised me and told me that I was a beautiful, God loved me, and that, uh, you know, they said that until I was six to 14. So when somebody tells you you're beautiful, God loves you, be a good boy, you know, you believe that. And I believe that till this day. And I'm going to be 90, God willing, I'll be 93 in a few weeks, and I still think I'm beautiful. Hello? But it's not about me. It's about the recipients of the award that I am so honored bears my name. And the recipients could not better reflect not only my name and who I work for and for what I sought to, to dedicate my life to and work for. Standing behind me is the baddest brother I'd ever known in my life, Martin Luther King Jr. You hear what I'm saying? We were like the Bopsy twins, could not be more opposite. You know, he called me a left-wing McCarthyite because he thought that there was, I thought that there was an FBI agent under every bed and around the corner. And I was right. <laughs> but meanwhile, let me express my personal congratulations to this year's winner and recipients of the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award. When you hear their story, and when you hear the commitment of what they've done, what they have done, far and beyond the name Clarence B. Jones Impact. Their work and history of what they've done speaks more eloquently than any name that carries uh, the award, my name. So I congratulate you. I am humbled and honored to be in your presence. I've come to talk to you and uh, uh, the only thing I want to share with you is that we have to go on a joint campaign to stop putting these words like correctional institutions, because they're not correctional, okay? We have to call them something else. I congratulate you, and I, I love you for the work that you've done. Thank you. Please welcome to the stage our Jones Award judges. Closer I am now. 
thank you and good morning. I am Keith Akins, local from Atlanta. Yes, yes, that second T is silent. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to my home city and the unceded ancestral home of the Muscogee Creek people. Um, I'll describe myself as a black male, bald head, close shaved beard, brown jacket, and a light colored shirt. I'm honored to share the stage with Dr. Jones and these wonderful judges. Uh, those who believe you should never meet your heroes have never heard or met Dr. Jones. Thank you, sir, for your words of wisdom and for continuing to be a beacon of what our voices can accomplish in this world. I am humbled and we all are grateful. Fittingly, the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award is an honor that is given annually to an individual team, an individual or organization for communications effort that changed our society for the better. Awardees have paved the way for future transformative campaigns by providing all of us the insights and blueprint that were key to their success. What does that success look like? Dramatically curbing teen smoking, winning the largest expansion of the Voting Rights Act since the Civil Rights Act, preserving DACA and protecting dreamers, strengthening reproductive justice in rural communities, getting a wrongfully convicted man released from death row. Having served as a judge on this year's panel, I am, I've had the honor and privilege to learn about a number of amazing and extraordinary communications campaigns that elevated ideas, influenced attitudes, and inspired action in pursuit of change. That we had so many incredibly strong nominees made the judging process a little bit tough this year, but ultimately it proved the worthiness of our 2023 Jones Award winner. Thank you. Hi everyone and thank you Keith. I'm Sylvia Ewing and what a great conference, right? Thanks to the kindness of people like Kate who loaned me this shawl, because it was a little cool, so Kate, I've got to give you your shawl back a little later. Um, that kindness just extends throughout the room and it extends back home uh, to the local ComNet uh, chapters like in Chicago where I recruited my colleague or my colleague uh, Jalene at a local event. But what a privilege it is to be here and to work with these other judges. I know we all see it as a huge and humbling responsibility, but we got it right. Protecting those who are courageous enough to shine a light on the wrongdoing of people in power is critical to the functioning of our democracy and society. You're going to meet two dynamic women who represent whistleblower aid. They know what it's like to withstand pressure, speak truth to power, spread the story of their clients widely, and ensure accountability for all. They provide pro bono service and the benefit of personal experience and guidance to support whistleblowers as they navigate an often dangerous legal landscape. Whistleblower aid has brought much needed 
scrutiny, and better regulation to social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. By taking a holistic approach to protecting those willing to expose wrongdoing and advance justice in response to it, whistleblower aid has brought accountability to powerful institutions while prioritizing its clients' well-being under the face of intense scrutiny. We have all benefited from their efforts. Thank you. Hello, I'm Fiona Guthrie, and as the winner of last year's award, I am thrilled to celebrate this year's winners. It was truly such an honor to win last year. The Innocence Project was the organization. And as I learned about the extraordinary work of each and every organization that was in the running for this year, I was truly, truly humbled. There is such talent, such smarts, and such power in the work of these organizations. And I just want to digress ever so slightly. I want to give you an update. You know, as was mentioned, uh, we won the award last year for a digital campaign to stay the execution of Purvis Payne, who was on death row in Tennessee. We learned last month uh, that Purvis, after 35 years of wrongful conviction behind bars, would be eligible for parole in just four years. It is not exoneration, and that is what we are hoping for, but it is a huge step, and we are immensely, immensely grateful. So, with that, to bring it back to this case, it gives me enormous pleasure to present the 2023 Clarence B. Jones Impact Award to the amazing and brilliant team at Whistleblower Aid. When and how did it occur to you to take all of these documents out of the company? At some point in 2021, I realized, okay, I'm going to have to do this in a systemic way, and I have to get out enough that no one can question that this is real. One study she found from this year says 
We estimate that we may action as little as 3 to 5% of hate and about six-tenths of 1% of violence and incitement on Facebook, despite being the best in the world at it. Haugen's lawyers filed at least eight complaints with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which enforces the law in financial markets. Hi. Some of you may remember that Sunday night in 2021 when Francis Haugen first went on national television to expose Facebook. And those of you who don't, we're probably watching Tom Brady come out of retirement to go against his former team, the New England Patriots, and beat them. I have to say, he was pretty tough competition. But Frances was winning more than a ball game. She rocked the social media world. The next morning's headlines said it all. Facebook is misleading the public. Facebook whistleblower says company incentivizes divisive angry, and polarizing content. And this from the New York Times. Whistleblower says Facebook chooses profits over safety. Of course, these headlines and the storm of public outrage that followed didn't come out of the blue. They were a result of months of work done in the utmost secrecy, so no one, least of all Facebook, would suspect what was about to hit them. We wanted to make sure Frances got to tell her story her way. We wanted the public to hear the explosive revelations that she brought to us before anyone had a chance to change the subject or put a different spin on it. At Whistleblower Aid, we believe a single individual with the courage to tell the truth can take on the world's most powerful institutions. Thank you. I'm Libby Liu, and I am the CEO of Whistleblower Aid. On behalf of our organization and the dozens of whistleblowers we work with, we are so humbled by this award. And as excited as I am to stand here representing our organization and our whistleblowers, I just want to warn you, I'm a nervous wreck because I have terrible stage fright. <laughs> but I promise I'm not going to try to envision you in your underwear. I'm right here with you, Libby. <laughs> it's an honor to join you here in Atlanta. As a lifelong communications professional, I feel right at home. As Vice President of Whistleblower Aid, I oversee the communication strategies for each of our clients. And I've spent my entire career on accountability. I've brought down my fair share of corrupt officials. But it was, thank you. Yeah. But, <laughs> But it wasn't until I became a Me Too whistleblower myself that I understood how hard it was to do something like telling the truth when powerful people were working so hard to keep that truth from coming out. But I was lucky because I didn't have to go through that experience alone because I was a client at Whistleblower Aid before I was a team member. And I now help other whistleblowers expose corrupt officials in their lives. We are a small but mighty team of six people. <laughs> like Naomi, many of our team, our board members, and our founder are former whistleblowers. So we know exactly what it's like to go through this journey. 
It's one of the hardest things a person can do. It's often lonely and isolating, and worst of all, you don't know if you're going to succeed. But we all do it for the same reason, because we can't not do it. Something kicks in, whether it's your conscience, your sense of duty, your commitment to public integrity, and it overrides everything else. What whistleblowers all have in common is the realization that we have to do something, because if we don't, who will? Institutions and companies, they're not going to right themselves, because the people in power are the problem. In a lot of our cases, the health of our democracy is at stake, because what is being abused is the system of government itself. Or, in the tech industry, an equally dangerous form of abuse, as major companies harness new technologies to outrun government regulation and public interest to chase profits. So, in 2021, Whistleblower Aid decided to focus on big tech as a strategic priority, precisely because of the outsized impact a few corporate goliaths have on the world. And our awareness campaign with our partners, coworker.org, is what brought Francis to us. If whistleblowers don't tell us what's happening behind closed doors, the things that they are witnessing firsthand, those abuses will just continue. We live in a world of vast power asymmetries. There is no easy path to change, because every institution we turn to, legislatures, governments, agencies, the media, they all have their own gatekeepers and their own particular way of doing things. What makes Whistleblower Aid unique is that we know how these systems work. And we can support our clients through every step of the journey. We give legal counsel, and we create comms and advocacy campaigns all to maximize the impact of their revelations. We've worked with dozens of public and private sector whistleblowers over the last six years, offering our 360-degree support completely pro bono, but only for public interest whistleblowers. There is a vibrant industry for for-profit law firms that handle the whistleblowers that are in it for a payday. When we were created, the ones who were in it purely for the public good had few options for affordable representation, but now they have whistleblower aid. We are so grateful. Um, communications are key, of course, and that's what we're here to focus on today. We have to harness the power of the media for the rest of it to work. When whistleblowers come to us, we have to understand why they're coming forward and what they hope to accomplish. That shared understanding forms the basis of our goals and the strategies that we'll implement to make the messages land. We have several audiences in mind for our overarching legal narratives that we help our clients prepare. In our world, they're called disclosures. The media is the megaphone, of course, but we're, all, but we're constantly thinking about and talking to the people in charge and in power who can make the change that's needed. The way we launch a case is crucial. We need to craft our message and we need to choose the right messengers, which starts by singling out the most effective media outlets and the best journalists to work with for each particular case. 
Having run an international broadcasting company for 16 years, I've been on the media side of this, and I have to draw on all that learned experience to make sure our media partners stay synced up and playing well in the sandbox. I know exactly what it's like to sit on a powder keg of a story, holding my breath, waiting for just the right moment. So what do we mean by the best journalists? I mean, everyone thinks they're the best journalists, right? So good reporters, good reporters are ones that think critically and test the solidity of every claim, as it should be. They have to have the subject matter expertise and investigative track record to grasp the full significance of what we're bringing to them. They need to understand the complexities, but they also need to know how to tell a strong, straightforward, and easily digestible story. We prepare our clients extensively for the moment they talk to reporters. Usually, they speak with them off the record before agreeing to speak for attribution. And we shepherd them all the way through. We also identify, identify validators who can corroborate the whistleblower's story and or the whistleblower's credibility. We do opposition research to prepare for retaliatory attacks, character assassination, and disinformation. And as early as possible, we arrange briefings with lawmakers and regulators, again, with a view of framing the story correctly so the people that are most threatened by our clients' disclosures don't have an opportunity to hijack the narrative. And that's a win-win. Because as more high-profile validators emerge, it also protects our clients. After Francis was the star witness for the left and the right in the Senate, how could Facebook go on the attack? Most of our big public cases are launched as triple features across multiple platforms. The main print story, the main broadcast story, and a separate profile piece about the whistleblower, him or herself. We don't want people just to be informed. We want them to be engaged by and activated by what they see so they can demand change. Our goal is to make it impossible for the agencies with jurisdiction to ignore the story. Media coverage is a big part of that, but we also make public statements and work behind the scenes to urge Congress and other legislatures to act. So, now that you know a little bit about what we do, let's go back to 2021, when Frances Haugen, a product manager on Facebook's civic misinformation team, approached us with tens of thousands of screenshots, stepping out of the shadows and into living rooms across the country. I flew to Puerto Rico to meet Frances on her home turf. We had deployed a videographer to create a quick profile so we'd have something in our pocket in case Facebook caught wind to her. And I wanted to be there to make sure the framing was just right. But of course, because we are who we are, Frances and I spent hours and hours poring over Facebook's public statements and matching them against the documents that showed they were lying. You could say, we became trauma-bonded through outrage. It was literally one oh-shit moment after another. What Francis had seen from the inside of the world's most powerful social media platform was the dangerous pattern of putting profits over people. The company had seen the upside of spreading hate, violence, division, and fear, and even embraced it because it all drove engagement. Hate, violence, division, and fear meant 
more users, spending more time on the platform, and that meant more money and more power for them, regardless of the cost to the rest of us. And they were well aware of that cost. It was immediately clear to us that Frances had more than a story to tell. She also had the documentary evidence to back it all up. Our job was to make sure her disclosures made the biggest possible waves here and around the world. But we also had to keep her safe, and we used our legal expertise to make sure she stayed firmly on the right side of the law. Our huge, then four-person team <laughs> worked around the clock um, to trans um, transform her screenshots into PDFs so that we could put them in a searchable database. Remember the movie Spotlight? Yeah, that was us, day and night, because we couldn't even do the analysis we needed until it was all searchable. But we didn't go to the media first. We submitted Francis's documents and disclosures to a number of government agencies, including the SEC. Doing this was essential because it triggers legal protections against whistleblower retaliation. We then submitted her documents and disclosures to members of Congress, stressing the need for complete secrecy, which is not that easy on the Hill. Um, Congress had the legal authority to do whatever they deem necessary for the good of the people. Facebook, like most corporations, uses non-disclosure agreements to intimidate and force its employees to keep its secrets. Once upon a time, NDAs were used for trade secrets, which is completely legitimate. Today, they're used to silence whistleblowers and threaten them with lawsuits. Going to the agencies and the US Congress was a legally protected way for Francis to share her documents. Next, we executed a three-stage communication strategy to keep the pressure on to finally get meaningful legislation passed. But the documents, they had to be the star. We wanted to protect Francis's identity right away because we knew from experience that the first thing powerful people do who are under pressure is to attack the messenger. Mm -hmm. The evidence spoke for itself, so we couldn't let her identity distract from the impact of the document drop. Facebook could try and fail to discredit its own internal documents, but we were deliberately depriving them of a target to hit. Jeff Horowitz of the Wall Street Journal had the print exclusive, and he's a great investigative journalist who had earned Francis's trust by extensively reporting on Facebook. Jeff understood the context and had the network of inside sources so he could build out all of these stories. He was given the exclusive to publish an entire series of in-depth reports based on the documents and disclosures that we had provided to Congress and the agencies. The journal, with its deep resources and expertise on a wide range of issues, was one of the few outlets with the credibility and the journalistic chops to dig deep on the many subjects on our first disclosures. And while legacy media is far from the only game in town, the value of their resources, expertise, and audience reach is still really powerful. They command attention on Capitol Hill and in corporate boardrooms in a way that few other outlets can. At Whistleblower Aid, they are central to our maximum impact strategies designed to create inflection points in the national discourse. And let's be real. We weren't going to launch Francis on social media because, you know, 
it's Facebook. <laughs> and it's also not about finding just the first journalist to tell your story, but about finding the right one, like a partner, your first one, your second one. The storyteller matters. Building those relationships is paramount before this kind of launch. The days before a public launch are nerve-wracking. Our partners are almost ready to tell the story. Months of work have gone into it, and the pressure for everybody to keep the secret and hold to the strategy is intense. Working in this high-stress environment with such high stakes, it seemed like every day there was a new crisis. On one day, we caught wind that our offices were being watched. And then, due to a miscommunication, just the day before the 60 Minutes reveal, CBS Online published a few of the disclosures, which were supposed to be the exclusive right of the Wall Street Journal. Mm. That sucked, and I personally took responsibility for it. But both outlets will forever be go-to partners for us for future cases, because they were just such pros. The first blockbuster piece came out on September 13th, 2021. It revealed a secret Facebook program called Crosscheck that allowed certain users to get a pass on content moderation, flouting Facebook's own rules against misinformation and hate speech, and directly contradicting all of their public statements. The news hit Washington and Facebook headquarters like a lightning bolt. Within minutes, our inboxes were flooded with journalists and Hill staff looking to make sense of what was going on and trying to find out what they could expect to unfold next. The next day, the journal published a brutal story on just how aware Facebook was about the damage Instagram was doing to the mental health of teens, driving them into depression, self-harm, and even suicide. That was followed by more stunning reports on the role Facebook plays in the trafficking of drugs, humans, misinformation, disinformation, and their utter disregard to even attempt meaningful content moderation in languages most dependent on it. Jeff's reporting made clear how and why Facebook's algorithms were promoting anger and division to boost engagement and profit. And as these stories kept appearing, we held our breath. Because while our circle of trust knew the identity of the whistleblower, no one else did. And then we deployed our second phase, introducing Francis. We knew, based on how they handled other whistleblowers, that Facebook would go on the attack because their efforts to push back on the documentary evidence was failing. We knew they would work overtime to identify the whistleblower so they could go after her personally. So we kept Francis out of the public eye at first. We needed to make sure that when her identity was revealed, it was done objectively, accurately, and professionally. We worked behind the scenes with our broadcast partner, 60 Minutes, to ensure that the public would be given an opportunity to get to know Francis on national television before Facebook had the opportunity to poison the well. The timing and order of operations had to be precisely orchestrated. Francis was set to testify in the Senate just two days later, and it was critical to wrap up her launch in time to get her to the EU, where they were finalizing their platform accountability legislation. Her 60 Minutes interview 
aired on October 3rd after three weeks of nonstop media coverage about the revelations in the journal and other follow-on reporting. She was finally able to use her own voice to expose what she'd seen at the company and be able to tell us why her conscience would not allow her to be silent. Just being allowed to be herself was compelling and made her revelations resonate in a wholly different way. And let me tell you, as a whistleblower, it was so empowering to be seen and heard. So let's be clear. Media outlets don't always like to share exclusives. So we had a lot of work to do so that the journal in 60 Minutes wouldn't step on each other's toes, especially with a staggered launch. Our strategy was to be transparent, honest, and as helpful as possible, always keeping the lanes clear for the double exclusive. Ultimately, they knew that working in tandem would each play to each other's strengths and reinforce the power of their efforts. The Wall Street Journal pieces built momentum for the 60 Minutes reveal, and 60 Minutes drove its millions of viewers back to the Wall Street Journal. The folks we work with were incredibly professional, and Scott Pelley was a whistleblower himself, so he got it in a way few people could. Well, telling this story years later may make it sound like it was all neat puzzle pieces kind of fitting together, but let me tell you, it was not. Managing double exclusives between first-tier national outlets with staggered launch dates and teams of journalists and their editors responding in real time to developments and our small team keeping it all together, it was a lot. Just negotiating the date of Francis's 60 Minutes reveal was a challenge. As we were looking for the best slot on the 60 Minutes season, and the Wall Street Journal, understandably, wanted to keep their exclusive as long as possible. Ultimately, as you know, we agreed to air opposite Tom Brady and the Patriots. Go Pats. Go. <laughs> that gave the journal three weeks to push out one stunning report after another. Sean Gibbons remembered having to choose between Francis and Tom Brady. Does anyone else remember that moment? That was the strategy we designed for maximum impact. We opted for high risk, high reward. And we had lawmakers and journalists all over the world holding their breath to see Francis testify on October 5th. So in addition to prepping her for the hearing that day in between, we had to find time so Francis could meet with more members of the committee virtually before she appeared at the hearing. We even had to have a security detail going in and out of the Senate because Francis was being chased down by the press. And we were just getting started. The sheer volume of materials that Francis had to disclose meant there was plenty more to say, and the impact of what she did will be felt for a very long time. So strategy number three was to develop different consortiums of reporters from around the world so who could lawfully receive and report on the documents once the Wall Street Journal's exclusive ended. But this was not an easy sell. No media outlet wants to be second or third or fourth on a major story. I'm sure some of you can relate. And a number of them want to let us, let us know in no uncertain terms how unhappy they were. But 
Our priority is to always protect the client. And that meant there could be no leaks and no unforced errors in the order of the rollout. Members of the International and Domestic Press Consortiums came to understand that there was so much more to report from Francis's cache of evidence. No one or even a dozen journalists could exhaust the newsworthiness of what she revealed. In this way, we could expand the coverage and the impact of her disclosures around the world. And to sweeten the deal, we arranged for Francis to do closed Q&A sessions with members of the consortiums to help them translate the Facebookese and to explain the context of the documents. For example, their euphemisms were totally screwed up. They used hex for the small team that was working against human exploitation and social cohesion for the small team that was trying to prevent genocide. It's but, disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> but the drumbeat of reporting continued, which was not so good for Facebook, but was very good for getting the truth out. What informed this strategy was more than the standard communications playbook that we all know. It was our deep knowledge of what we refer to as the whistleblower playbook, how it works, and how to anticipate and stop the most likely lines of attacks. The good news is, Frances got to the EU in time to testify, and she has been credited for getting the first ever Digital Services Act and Digital Marketing Act across the line into law. It's amazing. We also brought her before lawmakers in the UK, Germany, France, and did opening night main stage at Web Summit that year in front of 42,000 people. The same day, Facebook changed its name to Meta. Weird. <laughs> you know, that's a thing that these companies do when they get into trouble. Anyone remember when Philip Morris magically became Altria? <laughs> so, Francis's revelations became a watershed moment of platform accountability. And it didn't take long for other high-profile whistleblowers to come forward. I appear before you today to answer questions about information. I submitted and written disclosures about cybersecurity concerns I observed while working at Twitter. My name is Peter Zatko, but I'm more often referred to by my online handle as Mudge. For 30 years, my mission has been to make the world better by making it more secure. From November 2020 until January 2022, I was a member of Twitter's executive team. I'm here today because Twitter leadership is misleading the public, lawmakers, regulators, and even its own board of directors. The company's cybersecurity failures make it vulnerable to exploitation, causing real harm to real people. The most prominent of these was Peter Zacco, an internet safety pioneer known as Mudge. Mudge was the former security lead at Twitter. He came to us before Elon Musk began his courtship of the company. Mudge had explosive revelations about the inability of Twitter to protect data, to ensure continuity of operations, or even to comply with the laws and consent decrees it was subject to. Mudge had spent his life in the tech sector and was enormously respected throughout the field. 
You got it. Jesus Hacker. We, His nickname is Jesus Hacker. Yes. He helped shape how our government invests in innovation and famously testified before Congress as a very young hacker. So he didn't need to be introduced in the same way that Francis did. He didn't need to bring out reams of internal documents. And the, pub, the power of Mudge's revelations was his expertise. We couldn't simply cut and paste the strategy that we used with Francis. When Jack Dorsey recruited Mudge, he asked him to give him the ground truth at Twitter because he wasn't getting it from his own team. Mudge felt obliged to do whatever he could to help because that's just who he is. And he was also touched when Jack said he went into computer science partly because of Mudge. Mudge's job at Twitter was to enhance data security and the company's security infrastructure. It didn't take long for him to uncover some shocking security flaws, flaws that their own engineers had been raising the alarm on for years, and conditions well beyond anything he was led to expect, endangering users and allowing bad actors, especially foreign adversaries, to exploit the platform. Like most whistleblowers, Mudge did what he could to raise the issues internally. But, again weird, the company didn't want to hear it. After Jack Dorsey left, the leadership wasn't just uninterested in the solutions he was proposing, they didn't even want to acknowledge there was a problem. No surprise, since the next CEO, Parag Agarwal, had been head of engineering before he was elevated. So pretty much all of this had happened under his watch. But always a champion for the public good, Mudge could not live with allowing such a dangerous situation on the world's town square to continue its perilous high-wire act. We handled Mudge's case in two parts. First, we filed an 80-page disclosure with the SEC so that they would have an opportunity to review the facts before a media storm was raging above their heads. Then, we lawfully submitted his disclosures to members of Congress, enabling the Senate Judiciary Committee to subpoena him to testify before them, the only way he could speak publicly. One of the biggest challenges with Mudge whistleblowing is that it tested our ability to translate arcane tech terminology and concepts into a story that the public and lawmakers could understand. Who here knows what God mode or monetizable daily active users is? Anyone? Nope. Hint, the first is the ability to take over anyone's account, and the second is a made-up term from Twitter to sell advertising. So we started the narrative by simplifying the terms and then integrated the ideas our audience was already familiar with. We then moved the story towards visuals and analogies. Mudge said Twitter was like being on a jumbo jet in air with losing an engine without another one and no user manual. We emphasized the real world consequences like January 6th. We tied every thread of the story into larger themes, and most importantly, to why our audiences should actually care. Because in 2022, you didn't need to have a Twitter account to be impacted by what happened on the platform. We had all lived through the 2020 election and were, in part, thanks to Francis, just beginning to understand how entire societies could be manipulated by the virtual spaces so many of us were living in. 
We hit on these themes when breaking down Mudge's disclosures to the public. Twitter was already big news by then because Musk had just announced he wanted to buy the company and take it private. So a lot of people were voicing fears about the future of Twitter. If they only knew, right? And the SEC was reviewing Musk's proposal to take the company private. It was clear to us we needed this story to break in Washington, D.C. because Congress couldn't and wouldn't ignore it. One month later, our media partners broke the story. Mudge's unassailable reputation was a huge asset for us. We made no attempt to conceal his identity. Who he was powered his disclosure. In fact, his name and face appeared on the front page of the Post, and the hacker world flooded social media with validation. Prague didn't stand a chance trying to discredit Mudge. No one could. This, too, was also planned as a story to be shared among different media outlets. Only this time, it wasn't a double exclusive, but a triple exclusive, with the Post breaking the story in print, CNN on television, and then Time magazine with a long-form profile of Mudge himself. We wanted our client to not only be known on Capitol Hill or Silicon Valley, we wanted him to be a household name. But his credibility, luckily, was his shield against retaliation, and we were committed to keeping that shield intact. As you can imagine, this took considerable coordination. Each media outlet needed to publish on a synchronized schedule, and everyone needed to keep the story secret ahead of time. As you said, no small feat. We also needed to be ready for the media storm when it hit, and we were. Our Francis experience had taught us the need for a triage team to be ready in those first few days with hundreds of inquiries coming in. We also sent written statements and quotes, staff live interviews, and made sure that we were helping to shape the story as the world was reacting to it. What happens in the first 24 to 48 hours of a major international story is pivotal. All the hard work that goes into the perfectly framed launch can be undone if your team isn't part of shaping that story. As it moves from news to commentary analysis to day two reporting, your team needs to stay with it and on it. And as a story like this breaks, much of our team is focused, as Naomi said, on steering the narrative and winning the news cycle in the face of pushback and skepticism. But a part of our team remains focused on the whistleblower. At one point, the company, Twitter, was portraying Mudge as an Elon plant. But just giving the date of when Mudge retained us threw water all over that attack. But since Twitter and Elon were heading for a high-profile trial in Delaware, both sides had a big stake in what he was disclosing. For most people, even those with experience in the public eye, a high-profile whistleblowing launch is stressful beyond belief. At Whistleblower Aid, we believe in holistic support. That includes providing for the client's physical safety, secure communications, mental health support, and even career support before, during, and after. Seeing a client and their family through those first brutal days is a crucial part of what we do. In the weeks that followed, 
our advocacy team leveraged the media attention to continue our work on Capitol Hill, helping lawmakers understand the implications of what Mudge was saying and why it was vital to investigate and hold Twitter accountable. So within a month, Mudge was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee and shining the brightest possible spotlight on these issues. And more importantly, his testimony was protected by the subpoena. As with Francis, the long tail of Mudge's impact is taking place inside the SEC and the FTC and in governments everywhere, where we brought Mudge to the folks investigating Twitter's violations of its own consent decrees and looking at enforcement actions. This work is ongoing and has been supplemented by more Twitter whistleblowers who came out corroborating Mudge with even more details. So we mentioned at the beginning how wrenching an experience it can be to be a whistleblower, but it's also important to talk about how empowering it can be and how it can lead to positive, even transformational outcomes. Francis has written a book, received awards, and founded a nonprofit that's focused on social media harms and solutions. She is a vis visible and influential advocate for social media transparency and accountability. And Mudge, for his part, has just joined the Biden administration as a senior advisor in the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. It's a mouthful. <laughs> CISA, we call it CISA. Yes. Those are cases where the whistleblowers are in a position to go public. A lot of our work involves people who have to stay out of the limelight either because of the top secret nature of their disclosures or because they would be endangering themselves and their families if their identities became known. In these cases, the communication strategy is more complex, but just as impactful. In 2019, for example, we supported the intelligence community whistleblower and their legal team who first disclosed then-President Trump's infamous phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. You know the one. When Trump used his position as the leader of the world's most powerful country to try to get Zelensky to dig up dirt on his political opponent, Joe Biden. The story became huge. <laughs> and... <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> and ultimately led to President Trump's first impeachment. But we couldn't allow the whistleblower's identity to be known. President Trump had publicly attacked the client and the lawyers. And the stakes were literally life and death. The job was to protect the whistleblower's identity at all costs. But even though we cannot speak a lot about our work on this case and so many of our national security cases, just like we use communications to amplify the voices of our publicly known whistleblowers, a successful plan can bring the anonymous whistleblower stories to the public just as impactfully. So as we close, we wanted to reflect on some of the themes of driving impact through communications in our work. Look. Our clients know they are keeping a secret that is hurting the public. We have to work with them on how to stop the damage through exposing the truth. Their sacrifices in bringing evidence forward, most importantly, creates public awareness. Ideally, as in Francis's case, their whistleblowing can lead to systemic change through legislation, public pressure, or civil litigation. 
Listen, whistleblowers have driven some of the most important changes in history, from climate change to nicotine addiction to abuses in our world's most powerful institutions. A whistleblower's role isn't to have the solution, but they can expose the root of the problem that can lead to meaningful change. And social change, let's say it all together. It, it takes, takes a village. village. We work together with experts, including advocates, academics, communication strategists, and many times other grantees of our donors. Our diverse set of partners always expands after an effective public launch. As storytellers and truth tellers, our most important partners are journalists. We believe in the power of the free press, in the credibility that comes with their scrutiny, in the impact that comes from the audiences they reach, and in the power of the news cycle to shift national discourse. Some may be skeptical that national discourse still exists, which is fair. Some think that because we no longer have physical water coolers, people don't hang out and talk about news of the day. But our work affirms that with the right message, the right messenger, and the power of the press, truth tellers can make a difference for all of us. So now that you know what we do, we want to end today with the voices of our whistleblowers talking about their very own experiences. Their courage motivates us to speak truth to power every single day. Without Whistleblower Aid, I would not have been able to come forward. Whistleblower Aid really helped me continue to do what I wanted to do, continue to do the right thing in a manner which kept me safe. Before Whistleblower Aid, honestly, I felt a little bit like I was way over my head and I didn't have adequate preparation. One person has the ability to make incredible change through what they're bringing forward. That's why whistleblowers are so essential. Our world right now is pretty much defined by asymmetric power structures. I mean, whistleblowers bring a sense of balance to our society. If you don't have people coming forward, that activity continues and begins to spiral out of control. We know that individuals can't afford to have proper legal counsel. Whistleblower Aid is a nonprofit organization so that we can give pro bono services to public interest whistleblowers. Some of the lawyers who helped found the organization were whistleblowers themselves, which gives them a mentality and experience that is incredibly unique. As a result of our work, laws have changed Industries have been reformed, and the public has risen to hold the powerful accountable. I want to find out who is the whistleblower. We got to find out about the whistleblower. In calling for the public disclosure of my client's identity, shall also be responsible, be that legally or morally. The complaints say Facebook's own research shows that it amplifies hate. Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. But the company hides what it knows. I came forward against concealing the truth and protecting a pedophile. Twitter leadership is misleading the public, lawmakers, regulators, and even its own board of directors. That plan called for policy and regulatory changes that would be very friendly to the coal industry. The president removed Charlie's nomination. That's pretty effective, I would think. 
Over the course of working with Whistleblower Aid, I have learned a lot about the process of whistleblowing and what choices I get to make in terms of uh, trying to maximize the impact of these disclosures. Whistleblower Aid helped me get everything in order and put forth a complaint to the Inspector General. Whistleblower Aid helped me essentially take on a big institution, really helped me figure out how to deal with the media, how to talk to journalists. They are providing me support without the expectation of return because I'm doing the right thing. There's always going to be whistleblowers, regardless of what party's in power. Um, there's going to be people seeing misconduct. There's going to be people facing the threat of retaliation. Looking back on it, I am really glad I came forward. I don't know where I would be without whistleblowers. It's just, it's, it's, it's so scary to think about. So, thank you so much for being a great audience. Thank you for the tremendous honor of this award. We know it will encourage future whistleblowers to find their voice and to use it with courage, purpose, and impact. Thank you so much. Thank you.